Hello there, I'm Amy Rapone, your host and trusted tour guide toward body liberation. I'm an anti-diet dietitian who helps my clients find nourishing ways to live their lives and a mom who's hoping she's not messing her kids up too much. I hope you'll join me in conversations with my guests about building unapologetic joy, liberating fat bodies, and bringing diet culture to its knees. Welcome to Rad Love Radio. Welcome to episode five of Rad Love Radio. I am so excited for y'all to join me for this very first in a three-part series as we talk about birth and pregnancy. I'm really excited about uh, having this series. Having my babies was really one of my biggest leaps forward in my body liberation and body acceptance journey. So I'm really excited to be sharing this with you all. Uh, our guest today is Sarah Murado. She is a dietitian in Rhode Island. I was very lucky to meet her on Instagram and learn about uh, her work. And so I am very psyched to have her on the podcast today. A few things before we get started with the episode. If you are a fan of what you learn here, definitely check out our Patreon. It is linked below in the show notes. All of the proceeds of the Patreon for each month go to my guests. I feel very strongly that my guests should get paid for their energy, their time, and their expertise. And I uh, would love to have you all help me out with that if you've learned anything or taken anything from the episodes that you hear here on Rad Love Radio. Also, if you're listening to this the day that the podcast drops, we have a little something special over at Rad Love. We are doing a new group program called Defy Discomfort. It is currently in its launch right now, and the doors are closing on Wednesday at midnight. That's Wednesday, December 15th. So if you are interested in joining us for a group around building your own body liberation, figuring out how to maneuver this world in a fat body, please check it out. I think it'll be really, really rad. Something to do in the new year. Also, if group programs aren't necessarily your thing, I am taking on one-to-one both nutrition and body image clients if that's something that you are looking for. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening and let's get on into the episode. so excited for this next guest. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being here. Feel free to uh, introduce yourself to the folks. Hi, my name is Sarah. My pronouns are she, they. I am a registered dietitian and a uh, diabetes educator that uh, I primarily work in gestational diabetes, although uh, throughout my career and currently I work with all individuals with um, all types of diabetes. Very good. So you're kind of the first part of our birthing person or parenthood series that I have going on here. So I'm so excited to get and dig into that part. But I really want to open with the question I kind of ask everybody is what does body liberation mean to you? 
Yeah, so I, I think I just, if I could just start with saying that um, kind of my framework is really providing inclusive, affirming care for all individuals and all bodies. And to me, uh, body liberation is really um, freedom from our society's expectation that uh, white, thin, cisgender, and able bodies are the ideal and therefore superior and healthier. To me, liberation is freedom, not just from society's expectation, but really one's own belief about themselves. So in my opinion, you know, I think that's as challenging to have liberation about and one's own belief about themselves, which to me is similar to allyship. So where it can be easier to stand up for others, even if they share the same exact oppressed identity, can be easier in that situation than to stand up for oneself and to love uh, oneself. So body liberation does not mean body love. And I think that that's so true, right? We have people who it's, I don't, I don't know very many people who don't, but there's so many people who, you know, it's so much easier to say that something is okay for someone else to do more so than ourselves. We kind of hold ourselves up to this uh, standard or expectation that's a lot harder to meet, even if it's true for others. Absolutely. Yeah, I think when we're thinking about body love, there's a body image, like speaker and author, that uh, there's something that I, I think their quote is maybe a year ago that I read this, but it's something that I have saved. Uh, their name is Jess Baker. I think it's the militant baker on, yeah. social, on social media. And they stated, the less I try to force myself to love my body, the less I hate it. To me, that really makes sense and connects because when we think of body liberation and then body acceptance and body love and all bodies are beautiful, it, it's harmful to expect only feelings of, of joy and celebration when society constantly works against this. Absolutely. You know, there's this element of no matter how much work we can do on ourselves, it it's not necessarily, uh, hopefully in small bits over time, but it doesn't necessarily take away how we're treated in society if we fall outside of those social norms, for sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then I think to also consider um, who who are we giving money to, which stores are we purchasing from? And um, when we think of like performative and we also like an analogy regarding Pride Month, how like all like major um, stores like Walmart and Target will have for like three or four weeks these rainbow items where the money they 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 profit off of it, uh, right? So uh, the money does not return to oppressed individuals. So when we think of body liberation, whose voices are we lifting and who are we learning from? And oftentimes we're in social media, the platform is given to the wrong people. I agree. I think capitalism always comes into play once things start to become that uh, the the social acceptability to a point like enough of enough of it i guess comes into play where the big companies can really jump in and you know it, it might seem like a step forward and I, you know there's a tiny bit maybe but there's so much more that needs to be done along with that if you're going to I don't know, even take ownership really of being a supporter of voices that are not supported typically 
making sure that they're at least a part of the table, that they're, they have a, you know, they're there and they're making up a good part of the table so that, you know, all of these thoughts about how that allyship should be done. We want to hear how, what people need more so than what we think that they need. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right. So tell me a little bit about uh, the work that you do on a more specific level, especially as the gestation dietitian. Okay. Yeah. So I would say um, over a decade. So since 2008, I've been a diabetes educator and primarily, again, I have honed it mostly to gestational diabetes and not to say that I would maybe a third of my work up to at times a half of my work is with all people with all types of diabetes, but the area where I spend a lot of my research and a lot of my learning has been focused in gestational diabetes, specifically because of uh, diet cultures infiltration and just this, uh, as you know, during pregnancy, there's so much judgment on our body and what our body does or does not do. And then to add on any diagnosis it can be really challenging for the person. So gestational diabetes is my main focus, but not my only focus. And then, you know, where do we feel like, probably can't speak to all of it, but where can more intersectionality come into that work? So when we have these diagnoses, do we see people that aren't getting the the access that they need to those things? Are they not receiving ethical care when it comes to either gender or race or income status or anything along those lines? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. When we think of like <laughs> gestational spaces, what do we think of? What, like what comes to mind when you think of prenatal spaces, gestational care? What, what, Im what images? We can start with images. Sure. Comes to images mind. is a, a cute white lady with a nice little bump. With a long, with a long flowing ponytail. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, with a very adorable um, bump that's very, you know, evident that that's the only part of the body, and and the hand is placed over it in, in pictures. So, but absolutely, a significant lack of um, intersectional focus in gestational spaces. It's prevalent throughout, whether it's in images or messaging or in care. And in my experience, I've worked with, closely, I have worked with a handful of organizations and a close relationship at a, at a state level with a, a dozen or more organizations, all regarding prenatal care. Every one of them just absolutely not prepared um, not skilled, not trained or informed about intersectional care, but during, a prenatal care or postpartum. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm, when I, when I went and had my two babies, I know, uh, I went into that with a fair amount of privilege and it's a very stark, uh, both in media and education, I think as well, even for the the parent themselves or the, the people who are doing the teaching where there's definitely a lack of representation around that quite a bit mm -hmm. and representation in the birth providers themselves right absolutely so, we, so it's a bit it's just something and when we think of like the risk to black individuals during birth and their significant higher risk for detrimental harmful outcomes mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's really petrifying when we think about 
the United States specifically and what our birthing environment is like. Yeah. How do we feel like, you know, that comes into play when we're talking about reducing the shame and guilt or even just our perceived personal responsibility um, that parents can take on during this time, especially when they get that diagnosis of gestational diabetes? Yeah. um, Over the past decade plus, I've worked with over a thousand people diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And certainly I am dismayed, appalled at the messaging they hear with this diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just really quickly, I might refer to gestational diabetes sometimes as GDM. Um, and there's some other things that I might clarify, or please ask me if I just am just speaking with, um, acronyms or wording that might not be clear, Um, but when we think about shame or guilt, it's just latent throughout this diagnosis. And we start with the most influential voices, our healthcare providers, um, as, as you know, healthcare relies on BMI to determine goals. And as we both are aware as dietitians, BMI was never attended, intended to be an indicator of health. Right. However, um, in pregnancy, the BMI is heavily relied on and it's often calculated based on self-reported or an estimated pre-pregnancy weight. So we're literally starting off with likely inaccurate data to calculate an inaccurate measurement of health. Mm-hmm. And which, you get to diagnose people sometimes. And as a diagnostic tool. (laughs) So then later on in regard to gestational diabetes, we know that healthcare focuses primarily on weight. So they'll focus primarily on gestational diabetes, the relationship with the body weight, rather than the realization that there are many known and unknown factors related to gestational diabetes, including being over the age of 25, just that alone, uh, ethnicity, family history of diabetes, previously have given birth to a baby over nine pounds, um, each subsequent pregnancy. It's so it's really harmful to relate a diagnosis of gestational diabetes directly and only to someone's weight. I know I've had several clients who've come to me just becoming pregnant where they are terrified of this diagnosis and what that could mean for them you know when they don't necessarily have maybe have some of the risk factors most of my clients are over 25 and they're just terrified of what that means and what their care may look like after they get that diagnosis absolutely and yeah we have healthcare providers firsthand experience this week with two well the, this week I, i'd say within the past week two situations in which a provider has told their fat patients to avoid bread and pasta long before their oral glucose screening test for gestational diabetes, long before that, just in order to possibly prevent the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Which we know wouldn't work anyway. That's not how, that's not how GDM works. <laughs> right. And therefore, when someone has restricted, unfortunately, and inappropriately, not on their own accord, but because of what someone they trust has recommended, when someone has restricted their intake during pregnancy, believing that they can prevent this diagnosis, ends up being diagnosed, how can they not feel responsible? Absolutely. And, you know... uh, it's it's mind-boggling to me and you know even if 
you know, restriction did play a part in what their numbers were going to be, that's not going to be the thing that's going to prevent them. And I would rather have early diagnosis so that we could work on that more so than pushing it off and finding it later on, you know, so that that doesn't even make sense to me as a strategy, even if that's how it was going to work. I'm so glad you brought that up because I have people message me on um, through social media about their birth workers and they'll say, well, we th- my client was um, received early screening for gestational diabetes based on their BMI alone, which first of all, if we know there are so many known and unknown risk factors for gestational diabetes, why are we not doing a simple initial screening for during that initial blood work when we're checking their hemoglobin? Why are we not doing an initial either fasting or an A1C then for all bodies and all individuals? But I like what you said, like, well, okay, well then let's look at if there is going to be early screening that can be beneficial because we can I, I like baseline information, baseline data, you know, it's knowledge is powerful in this situation. So I'm not opposed to early screening. I'm opposed to singling out who is screened early. Absolutely. I think that that that's a really important role to play because that's already, even if the person's going to pass their glucose tolerance test, they're already being stigmatized based on their weight Honestly, as long as they even get that far, because we know that there's plenty of physicians who won't even take people in fat bodies when they're pregnant. But, you know, just to kind of be singled out in that way to say, listen, this is probably going to happen to you because of this factor that as a society we take on as a personal responsibility, even though it's not, Mm -hmm. you know, so that just adds and adds and adds to that. So, yeah, that's... (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot and things that need to change for sure. And so when we think of those changes, what needs to really start occurring is to start with, so when you asked me, like, how can we reduce or prevent shame? Healthcare providers need to stop providing these blanket, unfounded, and unnecessary messages to their fat patients and stop with starting the conversation you have failed this test because when we think about the word failure, it's disappointing the expectations of others to be, uh, to fall short, to not be good enough. So how can we not feel shame when we are told we are a failure? Yeah. (laughs) You know, verbiage and a language is so crucially important, especially when people feel so vulnerable during pregnancy it's already such a vulnerable time, especially your first go round and even second or third, however many you have, because each time is so different, mm. you know, just to have this, this put on you as being, oh, sorry, you didn't pass this test. Like you could have done anything right. to have stopped you from it. You know, we Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's not like you're studying for a test and you can, you know, pass or fail. Right. And so really to reframe the first thing we've all received that call, if we've been pregnant, if you've passed or failed. So if healthcare providers are listening to um, consider the reframe of, you know, this, the oral glucose tolerance test identified that your pregnancy may be causing your blood sugar to fluctuate. This is not uncommon and we will help you learn what will work best for you. 
Oh, just, I love that. It's, it's really simple. And then uh, to normalize medications. So when we speak of shame, there's, um, I posted this on Instagram, so you're familiar with it, I'm sure, but uh, there's no shame when we need medication for other pregnancy conditions from anemia, hyperemesis, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia. So when we think about this, right, when we have someone who has low hemoglobin, so low, the, or known as like low iron, that's not uncommon. And as dietitians, we recognize that there could be some nutrition-related uh, interventions that could, you hear a lot of there could be some interventions that could improve hemoglobin. <laughs> we might start with some of these nutrition interventions, though usually we understand that during pregnancy, it might be more challenging without that aid of medication. So we encourage, while we will encourage nutrition related additions to one's um, intake, we do not place that expectation on the nutrition um, interventions and we have normalized medication for low hemoglobin or anemia, such as a multivitamin with iron or additional iron supplementation. Uh, so all of every other pregnancy condition has been normalized with medical inter intervention. And then there's gestational diabetes. And that's something that has to be 100% in your control of managing. Right. Absolutely. And uh, that, so these layers of, again, another opportunity were setting people up for failure because not only did you fail your test, you've now failed this um, intervention that we had expected to, to work for you. So right off the bat, to provide anticipatory guidance that this is a pregnancy-related condition, it's related to pregnancy hormones, it's likely going to progressively continue during your pregnancy, insulin resistance increases, you're, it's harder to manage blood sugar as our diet, as our pregnancy progresses into the second or third trimester. And to provide that anticipatory guidance regarding medication and insulin from the beginning, so that there's an understanding that that can be included that so that when it is brought up, it's not just brought up in response to what they have, what their numbers have done. It's already been brought up. So there's an awareness as they start some interventions. Yeah. And I think the already preconceived notion that our society has from diabetes in general, you know, certainly doesn't help with how we interpret that either in that we see diabetes as a completely personal responsibility kind of if you got this disease it's your fault right um, and if you want it to be managed that's all on you that in general is a huge huge piece of the puzzle that we completely ignore the other contributing factors to that and continue to create this stigma around this disease particularly when we know that sometimes gestational diabetes can increase risk for type 2 diabetes later on in life. Right. So when what, what we're doing is are a couple of different things. When you mentioned about stigma, stigma, first of all, when we're placing these um, at times unrealistic expectations on people, it increases stress and stress increases blood sugar. So it's this vicious cycle. Uh, I've had too many people cry uh, that they're so 
re reactive their emotions to what their blood sugar did or did not do, that their um, stress is increased. So, and therefore, and in a stressed state, our blood sugar increases. So, placing this expect this really um, harmful expectation, and then when you talked about stigma, for healthcare providers to stop expressing surprise when their thin patient has gestational diabetes and to stop affirming the thin patient who states, I cannot believe I have this. I exercise every day. I eat well. And basically I am not fat. Why do I like, why do I have this? And then I hear healthcare providers affirm them saying, well, I can't believe you have this. And yeah. that's just, uh, that. that's another part of this when we think of all of the above of what healthcare providers can do. Uh, for pregnant individuals, really to find your people, your your support. So to identify a safe provider that can be assessing their practice, looking at their website, their waiting room. What does their waiting room look like? What's the availability of inclusive seating? What is their messaging? And do you feel safe with them? And unfortunately, but I can see the premise that some practices require uh, transitioning among a variety of practitioners to meet, you know, whoever could possibly be assisting in your birth, but to ask your designated safe provider if you can either stay with them or at the very least have their support in identifying other safe uh, providers. And I know that you're having a, a, a doula coming up, a birth doula. And so one of the other things, in, in addition to finding a safe um, provider, would be uh, that we strongly encourage is to um, find a doula that aligns with your needs. 100%. Um, I know for me, that was an absolute game changer. I you know, didn't have to, I was very privileged to not have to uh, have gestational diabetes during that, although I, the fear of it, you know, certainly, of course, was very perpetuated, especially with my first. But having a doula as part of the puzzle for me was uh, crucial, both in finding and processing sometimes the way that healthcare dropped the ball with me. Mm, that's a good, yeah, right. So not that the processing part to have that person. I think you've also mentioned they also really helped people in your life support you. They supported not just your doula supported not just you you but other people in your life as you were going through this. Absolutely crucial, <laughs> crucial um, for my husband. He was absolutely in love with our doula. <laughs> he was so grateful to have her where he could just like text her when I was a total grump, not willing to do anything. He would just be like, what do I do right now? <laughs> she was kind of able to to help him through that a little bit. And especially during the, the birthing process as well, just you know, f helping him figure out the ways to support me so that we still had that connection. But mm. she was just kind of like those nice, there's just like open arms around us. I love that. I think that's so critically, oh gosh, the gratitude you must have for your doula. And that's a common experience from when I hear people who have a doula and for people to also like find other affirming providers, including um, if they have gestational diabetes, a, an affirming diabetes educator and how that can happen is ask if their lens is through health at every size, mm -hmm. but a really easy way that I've found for people to ask, like when I speak with someone who has a primary team that uh, I'm not a part of is to simply ask their diabetes educator or educators uh, which non-diet approaches um, 
do they consider when managing this diagnosis? And that would be uh, uh, really telling when the diabetes educator is able to, if they're able to um, ex you know, explain some of the non-diet approaches, because we know that blood sugar management has dozens of considerations and factors and diet is not you know, I think it's like less than 10. Well, it, and it depends on the situation and stuff, but it's, they're not, it's not the only focus that we should ever have with uh, managing gestational diabetes. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a wonderful way to frame that because I think sometimes I think health at every size with some of our healthcare providers, you know, they, they go, they kind of roll their eyes at it a, a little bit. Right, right. They're very much stuck in that weight centric mindset. Um, but asking about those other alternatives, what else can we work on besides this? So I know that that may be part of the puzzle, but what are the other yes. things? You know, if they're really focused on maintaining your weight, staying where you're at, can really notice, like, we really want to make sure that you're not gaining too much or whatever the verbiage that they may say to you in that moment can be really telling to be like, okay, <laughs> maybe right. I won't really have anywhere to go with this person. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I love that. That's a really great strategy and a really great strategy for uh, dealing with any physicians outside of that as well in any space. I like yeah. that. And with any diagnosis. So when we think yeah. about, um, like you had brought up a little while ago about the increased likelihood of knowing that gestational diabetes will increase the probability for a diagnosis of diabetes later in life. Um, yes, there is an increased likelihood of diabetes uh, type two, but it goes back to us talking about like that baseline screening for information. Knowing this, knowing that there's an increased likelihood provides you with information and this awareness to think of it as a good thing, because as you know, too many times we have um, adults that are diagnosed that haven't received health care in years. They go too long without baseline assessment of their health, quite often due to not feeling self safe within health care, but um, an unawareness. But knowing this risk allows for that early detection. So what will happen for someone? So there's pregnancy with pre-existing diabetes. So somebody who has type one or type two. So this conversation is really focused on gestational diabetes, where in this situation after delivery, you'll be, a person will be offered uh, another oral glucose tolerance test. Um, mm -hmm. But if you've had, if the person has had an adverse reaction to the previous test, an A1C can be done. And an A1C is just a common blood test. Um, it does not need to be a, a, in a fasted state. Uh, but that can be used as a diagnosis for diabetes. So, and then after the postpartum period, so again, they're in postpartum to have kind of like a, a some type of testing to see your current status regarding diabetes. And then separately to have the A1C test done about every one to three years, depending on the individual situation and how you know previous numbers were. Um, so every one to three years, we'll really be able to identify possibly an early diagnosis and to understand that all bodies have diabetes it's not uncommon and it's not your fault so it can be managed without restriction and similarly to what we've discussed to find your people and the providers that will support you yeah and that all goes back to what you had said before of knowledge is power right so being able to say that these are things that we're going to put in place so that we can make sure that when we know if you have it, we can manage it 
and without being terrified of getting that blood work every time and just being like, okay, this is just another tool in the toolbox that, you know, I'm going to need to find these people in case it's something I have to work work with. And we want to have those good providers regardless of a diagnosis anyway, just for our, our yearly checkups. But just knowing that we want to have those people and trust them to like not freak out at you <laughs> if your A1C starts to go up a little bit, you know, and that they're going to be like, okay, so, you know, we'll kind of see where that's going, but we'll, we'll work with it as it goes and leaving it a little bit more chill instead of like putting the fear of God in people around diabetes. Absolutely. That fear is already placed on them by their family, their friends, their grandma, their aunt, you know, like media. Yeah, the news. (laughs) The commercials. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That right provider obviously is key for so many different um, diagnoses. Yeah. So I think I'm going to ask one last question around this. And what do you feel like you want people most to know about diabetes as someone who works with it? regularly. Yeah, so other than um, quite simply, it's not your fault, um, has no indication of uh, your body and what you have and have not eaten or have and have not done, that is really manageable. And on time and time again, if I think of people who long term, so with someone, I'm thinking specifically of the people who I work with with type 2, their first appointment, they're petrified, they're angry, they're fearful. They might be angry because um, it wasn't caught earlier. I've had people who come in with their arms crossed, just really frustrated because for whatever reason, there might be a misdiagnosis. So the diagnosis might occur at um, uh, elevated state um, for this diagnosis. And we can manage that and get your right, like work with getting you right back. And then what I love is, I mean, I'll talk, I've talked with people who've been diagnosed with diabetes while in intensive care with COVID or somebody um, who hadn't gone to primary care or had blood work for years and where they are at that first appointment to where they are in three months, significant difference, six months, significant difference. And then when we check in in a year, they're like, hey, Sarah, I'm grilling with my friends. And they're just like, so what's up? And it's just like, I don't want to not talk with them anymore <laughs> because <laughs> it becomes such a part of their life. But yeah. oftentimes they'll be like, can I talk first immediately? Can I talk with you with like in three days or within a week or definitely within two weeks? And then they're they're just like holding on to our next conversation. And then soon I'm holding on to our next conversation because they I don't need that. me nice. anymore. Yeah. Right. So I'm just like, crap, I'm they're out of my life, which is great. <laughs> but they're ready to spread like everything that they have felt uh to peers and their influence around them for other people to feel empowered and encouraged and and also to recognize I had somebody who was doing so well and she said Sarah stop doing I'm I don't stop always saying I'm doing so well she's like I can't keep hearing that because there's going to be some times when I don't do well and then I'm going to feel like, and that's, and I was like, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you're absolutely right. So lessons learned of, um, it's not always just like, Hey, your A1C is always this number. So you're doing so well. Wellness to her was 
her daughter became pregnant and she didn't have fear at the baby shower, you know? So there is so much more than just that number. So that was more of a celebration for us that she wasn't fearful than the celebration of what her A1C did or did not do. And I think we forget that sometimes. Uh, and I think uh, certain healthcare workers forget that sometimes when we, we forget that people are people and not diagnostic numbers <laughs> or lab numbers that we see, yes. you know, and that we want to see how our, their lives were before when we're treating them and how their lives can change for the better after the fact too, when we give them the space to not have to hold on to fear and judgment yeah. around all of that. Absolutely. Well, Sarah, I appreciate this conversation so much. This was wonderful. Let people know how they can follow your work and check you out. Of course. Yeah. So on social media and Instagram is where I met you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if they follow you, they can find me there. But if not, it's simply gestation dietitian. And then my website is gestationdietitian.com. So it's pretty straightforward and simple. Now I'm also in a, um, I think I shared with you a grad program for, it's an accelerated grad grad program about instructional design and technology, Mm -hmm. because as I was building some um, platforms to support people that are not within my state, I identified like some needs where some some courses, but some programs and some interconnectedness online, I recognized that wasn't my strength. Like my strength is gestational diabetes and diabetes education in person Mm -hmm. or on the phone, but as more of like group support and other types of support. Um, So I'm building that um, out also to start October 1st with some one-on-one-to-one coaching will be available. Very good. And I will have all that linked down in the show notes so that people can just do a nice little link to you there. And I'm so looking forward to those being available so that I can send people your way too, because it's such a needed area that, you know, it's hard to find people who do work like you do. And it's so, so needed. And hopefully it will, will spread like wildfire too, that we can start to see that change. And likewise, like when you mentioned this podcast, anytime your voice, specifically your voice can get out there, it's with celebration and relief um, that people can hear from you and your messages. I've learned from you. I love when you're just sitting in the car and you just pick (laughs) up your phone and you start recording. Those are some of the best things that you put out there is just like... (laughs) Straight, straight out. Here I am. I have something to say, that's and right. that's where well, that's when I'm like, oh, Amy has something to say. <laughs> I, am <listening. laughs> I am listening right now. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I always have something to say. Unfortunately, I, I tone it down probably more than more than y'all get to see. <laughs> Well, well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for having me on. I really, oh. um, I can't, I'm so excited about all of this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm so so grateful. Uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Oh, I hope you all loved that episode. I know I certainly did. I could talk about that stuff with Sarah all day long. If you got anything out of this episode or you really enjoyed it or would like to support Sarah's work, head on over to our Patreon. Link is down below in the show notes. All the proceeds from this month's Patreon will head on over to Sarah at the end of the month to compensate her for her expertise and her voice. Uh, that is so appreciated here in this community at Rad Love Radio. I hope that you have a fabulous, 
fabulous end of your year. I so look forward to 2022 growing this podcast with you all and I'll see you next year.